Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikvat Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us on Zoom or in the building Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. For the Zoom link, please contact tikvatdirector at gmail.com or contact us on our website, tikvatisrael.com. There you can also support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and find helpful resources. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of His Word. A couple of weeks ago, our elder, Eric Friedman, spoke to us about the ins and outs of operating a motor vehicle. and an excellent lesson from a driver in training. And uh, no, I did not put that magnetic sign on your vehicle. I wish I had. At the risk of being redundant, I want to extend Eric's discussion this morning. I have discovered a serious flaw with my GPS system. I recently asked my GPS to take me to my destiny. It responded, I cannot find any results for my destiny. Can you provide an address? I responded, Hashem only knows and concluded that there is a deep flaw in using a GPS to find your way in the world. An automobile is completely useless, and I I only was able to think of two times when an automobile is useful. One is if you are fleeing the scene of a crime, and the other is if you have some idea of where you want to go. If you're fleeing the scene of a crime, you don't care where you go, just as long as it's away from the scene of the crime. So, uh, even if you know where you're going, there are many decisions along the way that a GPS cannot help with. I used to be a driving instructor. I taught UVA students how to drive transit buses, and I taught all university employees defensive driving after they had an accident. Defensive driving is driving to prevent accidents and without violating traffic laws. A GPS can't tell you how to avoid a collision. It can't tell you which lane to be in when traffic is backed up in the other lane. It can't tell you how fast is too fast for weather conditions. But if you have been driving for a while, you already know all these things and you do them as second nature. We come to Rosh Hashanah each year and we read the scriptures about a day of remembering to make trumpet blasts for our holy convocation We wish one another l'shana tova umetuka, a good and sweet new year. We rehearse our traditions for eating apples and honey and round chalot with raisins. We mention the customs for observing 
the days of awe between now and Yom Kippur. We discuss the beginning of the world, and as Messianics, we honor Yeshua as King. As you may know, the Torah readings for Rosh Hashanah are Genesis 21 and Genesis 22, neither of which seems to have anything to do with Rosh Hashanah or trumpets. So we remember to have a holy convocation, and we remember to sound the shofar, and we remember to read the Torah. As Messianics, we look ahead, reading about a future trumpet announcing the return of Yeshua. We already heard this, but I'm just going to give it again. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a rousing cry, with a call from one of the ruling angels, and with God's shofar. Those who died united with the Messiah will be the first to rise. Then we who are left still alive will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we will always be with the Lord. Well, the return of Yeshua is certainly a destiny that we all have in common. But the route we take will be different for each one of us. And just as when you are driving your car, there are many decisions you have to make along the way. And if each of us has his own way to travel, then how will we find that way? A GPS won't do it. I know that you will say that the Holy Spirit, the Ruach Elohim, will show us, and you are telling the truth. There is also more truth available, and oddly enough, it is found in our Torah reading today. First, let me summarize Genesis 21, because normally Genesis 21 is read on the first day of Rosh Hashanah, and the second day in the diaspora, we read Genesis 22. So just a quick summary of 21. It covers the birth of Yitzchak, as we already heard. It covers the rejection of Hagar and Ishmael. And there's an interesting story about Avraham, which means father of many nations, and Avimelech, a king whose name means my father is king, and a well at Beersheba. This chapter is like a foretaste of the next chapter, which also involves Yitzchak and Beersheba. But this next chapter is the one that connects us with Rosh Hashanah. We all know the story. After the matters mentioned in the previous chapter, God tested Avraham. He told him to offer his beloved Yitzchak as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. Now remember, Abraham, Abraham had already expelled Hagar and Ishmael, even though he loved Ishmael. And now he's being asked to slay Yitzchak. So what does he do? He gets up early in the morning. I think if it were me, I would have slept in that day. And maybe for a few more days, I would have put it off as long as I can. This had to have been 
the most gut-wrenching experience Avraham ever had. He saddles his donkey, he loads it up with wood, takes his knife and some fire, brings along a couple of young men and Yitzchak. After three days, he sees far off the place where God wanted him to do the deed. Why does somebody who's looking a long distance hold their hand up like this? Do you know? Because if they held their hand up like this, they wouldn't be able to see anything. I hope that was instructive. So Abraham leaves the young man behind, explaining that he and the lad will go and worship and return. Interesting bit of faith that they would return. He puts the wood on Yitzchak, he holds the knife in the fire, and then this famous conversation between Yitzchak and his father. As they walked along together, Yitzchak wonders why they are traveling with wood, fire, and knife, but no lamb. And Avraham explains that God will provide for himself the lamb, and the two continue walking along together some more. They get to the place, Hamakom, the place. Avraham builds the altar, ties up Yitzchak, places him on the wood, on the altar, stretches out his hand, and takes the knife to slaughter his son. Then comes an interruption, but Avraham is not easily interrupted. The angel of Adonai calls from heaven saying, Avraham. The last time Avraham had heard that voice was when God spoke to him and told him to offer Yitzchak as an offering a few days earlier. At that time, Avraham had answered, Hineni, I am here. Hearing his name being called from heaven again, could it be that Avraham paused? He was ready to obey. He had the knife in his hand. Isaac was lying on the altar, bound and helpless. Is it possible that Avraham was not thinking about having a chat with God at that moment? What more could God possibly ask of him? Should he go ahead and complete the sacrifice and then find out what God wanted to talk about? Which is more obedient? To complete the slaughter of Yitzchak or to respond to the voice of the angel calling from heaven? Perhaps Avraham was pondering this question when the voice called to him a second time, Avraham, at which Avraham spoke, Hineni, I am here. And the angel spoke, don't lay your hand on the boy, don't do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, and that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Remember, he had expelled Ishmael. We all breathe a sigh of relief when we read this scripture. And this chapter is read every morning as part of the morning prayers of every observant Jew. The story of the binding of Yitzchak has become part of the psyche or the DNA of every Jew. 
This story isn't just about some family that lived a long time ago. It happened to our family. It happened to our great, 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 many greats, grandfather, Avraham and his son, Yitzchak. And if you are not a Jew and have Yeshua, you also are a son or daughter of Avraham, grafted in by faith. The story also belongs to you. This drama is relived with every reading of the story, and we imagine being Avraham, and we imagine being Yitzchak. In Judaism, it is considered the sacrifice of Yitzchak because Avraham was only stopped by the voice of the angel. So Genesis 22 is read every day, and it's read as the Torah reading on Rosh Hashanah on the second day. But what does it have to do with Rosh Hashanah? Nothing here speaks of a new year, or trumpets, or raisin challah, or apples and honey. But it's what happens next. Another character is introduced in this scripture. Avraham lifted up his eyes, and behold, a ram, after having been caught in a thicket by its horns. And this is the tie to Rosh Hashanah, when we remember to sound the shofar for our holy convocation. For what is a shofar but a ram's horn? And a horn is a symbol of power. Until now, we have identified with Avraham or with Yitzchak, but now I will ask a new question. Have you ever been caught in a thicket? Wasn't Sarai caught in a thicket? God had told her husband that he would have children as numerous as the stars in the sky or as the sand in the seashore and they would be a blessing to the families of the earth. Yet Sarai was barren. She was helpless, caught in a figurative thicket. So what did she do? She offered her maid Hagar to Avraham, and the problem was solved. And Avraham thought so. Ishmael could carry on the family promise. Then God corrected them and told them that the promise would be through Sarah and the son that she would bear. She was too old to have a child, and yet she did. And after Yitzchak was born, Sarah believed he would be the child of promise. And she gave Avraham an ultimatum to expel Hagar and Ishmael. And God confirmed this. And that's what he did. Avraham was caught in a thicket. God hold him, told him to offer the hoped for and promised son as a sacrifice. He was caught in a figurative thicket. If he disobeyed, he would lose his righteousness before God. And if he did obey, 
he would lose the promise. If he trusted God, it would be necessary to slaughter Yitzchak, and now Yitzchak was trapped in a thicket. He was tied up, placed on the altar. His father had his knife out. He was just like the ram, with no ability to move from the threat. He trusted his father, but it looked like his father was about to kill him. Avraham was ready to obey, and the angel stopped him. Avraham had passed the test. So Avraham walked over to the ram. He took the ram. He offered him as a burnt offering, tachat beno. That's Hebrew. It means under the, his son or instead of his son. Beneath his son is translated instead of his son. So Yitzchak escaped his thicket, and Avraham escaped his thicket, and Sarai escaped her thicket. The ram, however, was not so lucky. He had to die. Sometimes when you are caught in a thicket, you will get a reprieve. If you obey, God can make a way of escape that you wouldn't have thought of. Suddenly a lane opens up and you can pass all that traffic that was holding you up. Well, that's one kind of thicket. But sometimes, sometimes you're thicket, you're the ram and you have to die. And being dead is another type of thicket. You're trapped. You can't escape. When you're dead, the deed is done. Except that Yeshua, another lamb, came to die in your place, just as the ram of Genesis 22 died in place of Yitzchak. It doesn't mean that you won't die. It means that even if you die, there is an escape. Yeshua said, I am the resurrection and the life. The whole scene on Mount Moriah guarantees resurrection. The author of Hebrews explains in 1119, for he, Avraham, concluded that God could even raise people from the dead. And figuratively speaking, he so received Yitzchak as though from the dead. If you have never been trapped in a thicket, you will be. You will be. You young people barely have horns, which are symbols of power. And you may not have experienced what it means to be trapped in a thicket like this, but you will. For Avraham and Yitzchak, it was resolved by a ram whose horn was used to keep him still long enough to provide an escape for them. So the story of the binding of Yitzchak has a connection to Rosh Hashanah through the ram's horn. But it also has application as we are encouraged through the story of how God can rescue us when we are caught in a thicket. And my final point is about what happens next in the story. 
the angel of Adonai speaks to Abraham a second time from heaven. Some of the promises are very familiar. Blessing, I will bless you. Multiplying, I will multiply you as the stars in the heavens and as the sand on the seashore. By your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. But I left one out. You may not remember this one. It's a little obscure. Literally, your seed will inherit the gate of their enemies. Interestingly, this is the blessing that was later given to Rivka, who would be married and become Yitzchak's wife. Laban, Laban, or Betuel, Laban and Betuel, when they sent her off with Abraham's servant to become a bride, they said, your descendants will inherit the gates of those who hate you. Interesting. <clears throat> In biblical times, everything happened at the gates of the city. Whoever controls the gates controls commerce, trade, travel, judicial actions. Your enemies cannot get to you without leaving their gates and coming to you. So what does it mean to inherit your enemy's gates, the gates of those who hate you? First of all, you have two types of enemies, but both types are powers and principalities rather than flesh and blood. From Deuteronomy 20, we learned that one type is an enemy that occupies land that God has promised to you. An enemy like this, you are to obliterate completely. The other is one that wants to destroy you and take land away from you. With this one, you try to make peace. A lesson from Deuteronomy 20. When you are caught in a thicket, what kind of a thicket is it? Is it a thicket that prevents you from conquering territory that the Lord has promised to you? Or is it a thicket that seeks to take away from you territory that you have already conquered? If all authority under heaven and earth has been given to Yeshua, your enemies can only act against you if Yeshua allows them to do so. Why would Yeshua allow your enemies to come against you? It's either to test whether the land you have already conquered is really yours, do you really possess it? Or to test whether the land that Yeshua has promised will be conquered by you. The purpose of the testing is so that the genuineness of your faith will remain, as in 1 Peter 1, 7. Your faith may be more precious than gold that perishes. So in the trials, when you are caught in a thicket, what lesson are you learning? Yeshua's testing is so that your faith may grow and be strong and shine. Yeshua knows about being caught in a thicket. He knew he had to die like the ram. His temptation 
was that he would somehow escape suffering and death because he could. He could have called down legions of angels to fight against his enemies. But he dared not do this because it was through his enemies that his ultimate sacrifice would come and his ultimate purpose served. He had to die and become sin, yours and mine, so that we could also die to sin. What's the worst thing that could happen? You could die. But Yeshua has already conquered death. Even death is no longer the enemy that can beat you. You already have eternal life through trusting, trusting Yeshua's death and resurrection. This Rosh Hashanah, may we take a lesson from the ram. The next time we are caught in a thicket, let us trust in Yeshua's purpose, for he is the horn, the power of your salvation. Set your face on him and learn from him until you see all your enemies defeated. Amen.